Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with the founder of Sober Nation, Tim Stoddard. Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. (laughs) Great to be here, Jonathan. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about, man. But I'd like to start off here by just keeping it simple and having you share a little bit about what things were like before you got sober and how you found your way into recovery. Getting right to it. Sure. Um, you know, my, my story before I got sober is similar to what most people's are. I thought it started off really great, actually. You know, like I, I always laugh when people say like, uh, oh, it was just terrible. There was nothing good about it. Like, yeah, no I don't fun. think that's true. I, I had a great time. For sure. Um, I was always like a thrill seeker. I was always pretty adventurous. And uh at the same time, though, I was always like a really reserved person. And till this day, I feel like I'm still kind of awkward and um, just like <laughs> a little weird, I guess. Right. So um, it, it felt good. I forget what they call it, like social lubricant. That's what it was, you know. So sure. when I was a kid, it just it felt really good to have something that could give me just some ease into going into social conversations and and going into like experiences that I otherwise would have been crawling out of my skin. Right. So yeah, it was, it was a kind of a, a dichotomy between the two things on one side of me, like I was always uncomfortable. You know, I was always just sort of crawling out of my skin a little bit. Like, ah, people just don't want to be around me. People know if I, if I come around and I bet they're laughing at me when I'm not there or, you know, like when you walk into a room and people are laughing and you automatically think they're laughing about you. You know, like I had that feeling just all the time, but on the other side, uh, there was like the thrill seeker part of me and, and I had a great time until I didn't, you know, and, um, when I wasn't having a great time anymore, like it was, it was not fun and it was terrible. Um, obviously it had to be for me to be willing to make such like a drastic change in my life for sure in, in getting sober. So, um, you know, it, it was, it was all fun and games until opiates got introduced into my life. And I'm not saying that other drugs like aren't serious. Like I had a terrible cocaine problem and in a lot of ways, cocaine really af- affected my health the worst out of anything, just cause I'm already like pretty high metabolism person. But when you throw like cocaine and Adderall in there, you know, like I was just super malnourished and sure. And, uh, um, but like the, the point I'm trying to make is when, when opiates and, and that other world, cause I'm from Philadelphia, you know, and, and in 
just the same in a, in a lot of cities. They have really, really terrible drug problems and heroin problems and opiate problems. Um, I'm not saying that Philly is like special by any means, but clearly there's like a a center point of heroin addiction and opiate addiction in Philadelphia. And so like once I fell into that other other side of it, it wasn't just partying and having a good time anymore. And okay. uh, and when that started happening, it 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 happened fast. And I find that in my experience, it it always happens fast when you talk to people who, you know, kind of cross that imaginary line into that just constant full scale obsession. No matter what, this is the most important thing in my life. So, so there's plenty wow. of instances where I look back and I have fond memories, for sure. Um, there's plenty of instances where I look back and I just I I, I look at the pain and like, kind of like feel ashamed of a lot of the things I did and, and how I acted. And so, um, so I, I see both sides of it, but nonetheless, like this way is, is certainly better. At least it has been for me. Yeah, I, I'd agree wholeheartedly with that. So, you know, we've chatted a, a little bit before and, and talked about your story a bit. If you would, could you kind of fill us in? Because I, I know there was a moment with, with your mom yeah. Um, that I think was a big part of, of your shift, uh, you know, kind of towards getting sober and, and just maybe that rock bottom or kind of part of that def- starting that, that momentum into recovery. What, what was family life like and, and what was going on with all of that? Yeah, and I really, well, I don't love talking about it, but I always sure. feel kind of privileged to talk about it because mm-hmm. I find that other people can relate to this a lot. So uh, family life, my family is great. I, I, I always say that uh, I've heard in the rooms and I've heard with other people's stories that like they didn't feel loved or whatever, and I never felt that way. Okay. Like, my family is just full of love, still is, full of That's support. Awesome. Um, it was just hard, you know, like my parents had me at a very, very young age and it was, it was just really hard. And you don't know it when you're like a kid, right. But when you get older, you start to put things together. I was like, damn, like we're really struggling. So, so, uh, my relationship with my dad was always great. Like I looked at him like a hero and, and still do on today's father's day and happy father's day to my pop, you know, like he's the man. Oh, and happy almost Father's Day to you, by the way, Jonathan. Almost there, man. <laughs> almost there. <laughs> um, and my mother is like the most caring person ever. I mean, she was an inner city ER nurse and like, it, it's just where she thrives. She just loves to ease suffering, I guess is the best way to put it. And my parents worked all the time. They worked their asses off and they had me so young that they basically like sacrificed their entire youth and their twenties just to like raise my sister and I. Right. And I didn't appreciate it at the time, but as I got older and, you know, had some, some time, I was able to actually look back at it and be like, wait, it's not that they were like neglecting me. It's that they were taking care of me. Right. Mm, And so, uh, so, you know, when, when my mom got sick, it was uh, scary, as anybody can imagine. I'm sure people listen to this have maybe lost parents or lost loved ones. And it's, it was like a really terrible point in my life. But basically, what happened, I don't know if I told the story with you before, but I'll tell it again for people listening. Yeah, yeah please do. 
Yeah, my mom got a very, very rare brain disorder, basically is the best way to put it. So like, uh, like she, she, I'll save everybody like the medical technicalities just because I learned about it so much. But at the end of the day, she ended up with like a big ball of like hardened coagulated blood, kind of like a brain tumor, but it wasn't cancerous. It was just like a mass of blood that clotted in her brain. And it landed right on top of her brainstem. And, you know, when that happens, like your, your brainstem is kind of the part of your lizard brain, right? It's just the, the bare bones. You need this thing to function. So yeah. really quickly overnight, she developed almost like stroke-like symptoms. Like her one eye kind of started pointing the other way. And, and she had been talking a lot about like numbness in her arm. And, uh, and yeah looking back at it like you wish you would done something sooner but we weren't really sure what to make of it especially because my mom broke her neck like five years before so uh she healed from that and you know like that was very painful and i remember the recovery process but the point is just like nerve stuff right like i had back surgery not too long ago and so it's difficult to see at the time the difference between like something was happening and just like pain in your arm and your side because of nerves and like we just didn't see it and then like I said, one day we woke up, one day my mom woke up and she called me and um, she was living in Germantown. I drove over to Germantown and I, it was, it was a shock just to see what happened overnight. And, uh, you know, so long story short, this particular brain disorder, there's only a couple surgeons in the world that like really even operated on it. Last, last time we checked, there was only even like a hundred or so, maybe a thousand documented cases of this happening. So this surgeon was all the way in Stanford in California. And we flew out there and my mom was scheduled for surgery. And the moment when it like really happened was the day before surgery, because I had flown from Phoenix and then Phoenix to San Francisco and they picked me up at the airport. And so in total, it was probably like nine hours of traveling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I was an addict and I was withdrawing basically. And anybody that can experience it, it doesn't take long. And so I was just like, I was very sick, you know, like yeah. just physically sick. I was just really, really sick. And I was too scared kind of to, hide drugs in my shoe or something and so I just put them in the pill bottle and got I I picked it back up in the hotel room basically when I got there and like right when I got there my mom walked into the room and my stepdad uh, her boyfriend at the time now her husband was kind of pushing her in the wheelchair and she told me that the next morning they were going to have the pre-op with the surgeon and it was pretty simple they were just going to talk her through the process like you know, the way my mom explained it to me, they were just going to have a picture or like one of those little models of a, of her brain and kind of just explain like, this is where we're going to cut in. And, you know, this is like where the mass is and, and, you know, we're going to do it through here or whatever, just, just a standard pre-op procedure, right. like a really yeah. difficult operation. And my mom just asked, she was like, will you come with me? And you got to understand I'm my mom's firstborn son even in my family with all my aunts and uncles, like I'm the, the first of my generation. So I'm, I'm the oldest across family wide. And so me and my mom were really close. And even like my aunts and uncles, I'm pretty close to a lot of them in age, right? So 
even though she's my mom and I'm her son, we still had a little bit tighter of, you know, like a friendship, sort of speak, like a support, a supportive relationship with each other, just because we were so close. And, and I just, I was so sick at the time. I said, no, mom, like I, I probably can't do it. I'm not feeling good just because I was so desperate to like ease those withdrawals, you know? And mm-hmm. so um, she left the room and it was that night, excuse me. I, I think I said it was the morning. It was that, it was that evening that she had the pre-op because her surgery was in the morning. And so I just remember going through my suitcase and, and doing what I had to do and kind of just looking out this window, still clear as day. I think this is even the part that I explained to you last time and just looking out this window in Stanford and seeing just this field and these, these big trees and just knowing like, wow, I just let my mom down and like, she might die tomorrow. And uh, just, it wasn't the bottom that I had before. Like I had really serious consequences before, like as, as a lot of people had just serious legal consequences, like physical consequences and getting beat up and right. Right. Like it was bad, but it was just that real, like emotional bottom where like I saw what I had become that drove me to just I I don't know if I was ready to get sober yet I didn't even really know what sobriety was frankly at that time but that was just the first like realization I had it was like man something's got to change and and it was a big moment for me wow yeah that's that's pretty powerful And, and your mom how is she doing now oh she's alive she's she's making the most of it you know like she definitely still has some symptoms and her mobility isn't the same, but it's just amazing over the years, the little things that happen, you know, like I remember two or three years ago, she got into an Uber for the first time, like by herself just to go. Um, she lives in a part of Philly now. It's called Roxborough and it's very hilly. I mean, like very hilly. Um, there's like a, a bike race every year in Philadelphia that goes through it. And when they go through Roxborough, there's this one part of the bike race that they call the wall. It's off Lyceum Street. And it's, it's, it's like straight up. Yeah. Straight up. It's crazy. Yeah. Like you see these guys start riding their bike up there and you're like, why, why, why are you doing that? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, the point I'm trying to make is like those Hills make it difficult for my mom. Okay. So at that time, Oh shoot. Sorry. My dog's busting in here. And so at that time she, uh, she made the choice and like built up the courage to, get in the uber and and do some stuff on her own and so she makes little victories like that every day and like i'm really proud of her and and really happy for fast forward here a little bit so you you have this moment and i get what you're saying i mean you know because i definitely had i'm sure a lot of a lot of listeners can relate like multiple rock bottoms you know trouble with the law you know financial stuff uh you know relationships and and things like that um, but yeah, I, I mean, I get what you're saying, like that emotional rock bottom where you are just directly faced with the person you become yeah. and, and the decisions that you're making. And you're really able to see like, man, this thing has me. And, uh, you know, for me, I know it's just this moment of like being exhausted, uh, you know, just definitely feeling I could see life was unmanageable, but definitely feeling completely powerless uh, over this, uh, you know, this addiction. So 
we fast forward a little bit. How did you actually get into recovery? Because you said at the time you didn't really know what sobriety looked like. I mean, how did how did your recovery journey actually start? Uh, my dad and my uncle were the first ones to really just offer me help. Like everybody knew, you know, it's not like it was some secret, but we had real problems in my family at the time, you know, like my, my father was, was trying to make some changes in his life. And obviously my mom was, was sick. And, uh, at that time, my sister, my sister was a, a really good swimmer. NPA. She's actually like a state champ swimmer. And I'm, I'm still, I love bragging about that. But uh, like everybody had stuff going on in their lives. So it, it, it was difficult to find exactly when the right moment was to, to address how sick I had become. And so, and so like when we got home and we got back to Philly, my dad and my uncle asked if I would uh, go over to watch a soccer game. I think it was Manchester was playing because my, my family's from Scotland. And so okay. they, love, they love soccer, as do I. And, you know, like I knew what was about to happen, right? It's not like it was some top secret inter- intervention. It was just like, hey, man, you want to come over and hang out for a little bit and, you know, maybe talk about some things. And so I, I remember going over there a little bit prepared to like have this conversation but i still remember getting a little angry and upset when they said that they thought like i needed to get help and that they had found a facility for me and uh they they, they wanted me to get treatment I, I wasn't expecting that you know i was just expecting i don't know <laughs> like not that you know and and uh it was this place called today incorporated and it was a new town. And I, last time I checked, it actually burnt down by a fire, which is sad because this place was, uh, was like an amazing, amazing place, especially with, I'm not knocking it by any means, but what, what treatment has become simply because of like the demand of treatment over the last 15 years. There's so many people that need help. Yeah. And when when that happens you just the infrastructure that has been built around it um makes it so that in my opinion a lot of times we lose these little gems right these tiny little facilities that are just mm-hmm. regular people that have been like aa guys for the last 20 years and have this idea like hey maybe i can open up a house and like find a doctor that that can help me and the place that I went to was very much like that. It was an old, like, Revolutionary War, I think, Underground Railroad building. And, like, the floors were all crooked. And it just smelled of old old wood. And the guy, my counselor, his name was Ken. And he really, really was the first one to just, like, just make me see the truth. And make me see that I didn't have to keep fighting this giant battle and when we talked about before when you asked me the question of of when was that moment you know i i I remember about four or five days in him looking at me and be like but you know that you can't drink or anything anymore when you get out of here i kind of remember like what what does that have to do with anything like not even really (laughs) getting it you know yeah i'm here because i have a terrible drug problem right and i gotta do something so that like i stop throwing up on the weekends you know mm-hmm. and uh and I, I, maybe that was the seed and i think about that moment a lot because i did my instant reaction to that moment was this combination of like 
denial, but also like willingness to just listen to it. Like, I don't know how to explain it. You know, I guess for you, cause you're a fitness guy like me, this is a good example when like you can't get an exercise or something. And then maybe you watch a video when you see that like your technique is just a little bit off. Right. And like, if you just switch this one little thing, you could get it. And then you're like, Oh, and then and you try it off and it clicks, you know, it was kind yeah. of one of those weird moments where like, I hated that he said it. And I, I hated that he even brought it up. Like I was almost insulted, but still there was this tiny, tiny little thing in my brain going like, well, like, I, would that be bad? You know, like, would that really be that right. terrible? Not, yeah. not drinking anymore. So, um, so yeah, like that was a big moment for me too. Yeah, no, I, and I get that, man, because I think like, and I, you know, I, I don't want to say I try to talk about this a lot, but I think probably a lot of people can relate. You know, I didn't think I had an issue with alcohol, but you know, I had, you know, a few moments kind of like you just described, just, just conversations, basically no one like talking at me or anything, mm -hmm. just conversations with people you know, other people that had been through this deal that really understood it, we were able to kind of connect on that level. And what I was finally able to see is it's like, okay, maybe alcohol wasn't the first thing that I went to. But when the drugs weren't around, it was almost like I needed something. And a lot of the times it was alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so I would get to a point with the alcohol, where it would just be like, all right, like, who am I kidding here? Let me get what I really want. So like the alcohol, the main issue with it is that it always led back to the drugs. And I think, I think that's where things finally clicked for me. It was like, fine. Okay. Maybe alcohol, maybe alcohol isn't the thing you really want initially, but it's part of the problem. And, and if it was like, you're saying like, I didn't like hearing that, like I, you know, I wasn't going to be able to drink again or that I shouldn't drink again but it would probably prevent me going back to the drugs. And so I was finally just like, man, why even, you know, why even risk it then? So you're, you're in this treatment center. Uh, the, the seed is planted. You get out of there at some point. And, and what do things look like from there? Well, um, yeah, great, great question. And like an important part of my journey that I feel like sometimes gets skipped over. I, I told you the first place I went to was back to my mom's. I had to basically like tell my landlord that I wasn't going to be able to pay the rent and, you know, I had to shut down my lease or whatever. And he was actually a really good guy, you know, total side conversation, but like, I called him and made an amends to him and, uh, and we had a really great conversation and he said kind of things about me. So I just bring that up. That was one of those things at the moment where like, I just felt such shame and like embarrassment, you know, like, wow, I basically yeah. had to get kicked out of my apartment. But so my mom was in Germantown. The first place I went to was my mom's. And, uh, and it, it really, really didn't take long. Like it's there, there is something to the people, places and things, right? Because instantly sure. I remember walk, there's, there's a Wawa on Allen's lane on Germantown Avenue. And I was walking to it and just seeing the buses drive by and, you know, I got out of treatment. It was in, uh, like late September. So or no, late, late, yeah, yeah, early October, late September. And the buses were driving by, and there was like a cold rain. And oh man, yeah, yeah. and like you know, I could just little hear too like familiar. The, say again, a little too familiar. That's exactly what, and I, I could hear 
I remember when this bus drove by and I could hear like that, that sound the tires make when they go through those tiny little puddles on the side of the road, you know, and there was just, there was just something there that I felt instantly really like, man, I don't feel as cool and confident as I did yesterday. And it happened really quick. And so I called Ken. I called that, that guy, Ken, and I just basically told him, I was like, look, I don't know what's going on right now. Um, I'm back home. And it was so funny because I remember he instantly said, like, did you get high? And I was just like, what the fuck? I was like, no, that's why I'm calling you, dude. Like, why would you ask me that? And then, like, looking back at how it. How dare you, sir? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then looking back at it, thinking of how many times people probably did and then called him afterwards. Because I remember just being like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you ask me that? But yeah. Um, and, and he said, well, I, I, there's a place in Florida you could go to. My roommate at the treatment center, who I built a pretty friendly relationship with, went to Florida. And, uh, and he, he, I didn't know that Florida had this recovery community. I just, he just said Florida. And I remember realizing that I have a cousin who was an NA guy, and he was almost three years clean at the time. And so I said, you know what, let me call you back. And I called my cousin and Brian and I were close enough, you know, like he lived in Florida. So he wasn't in Philly with like the rest of the family. Like I never saw him at barbecues or whatever, but right. I saw him from time to time and we knew each other. I called him. I was like, Hey man, I don't know how to say this. Can I come sleep on your couch? And he said, yes. And when I got there, he was really just explaining to me about this this community, like I said, and that same kid, Rob, who I was roommates with in the treatment center that Ken kind of said, Hey, Rob went down to Florida. You might want to check that out. I called him and he said he was staying at this really cool sober living facility. And my cousin basically fronted me the 150 bucks for the first week. And they, they put me up in there and, you know, I got a contracting job because I, I was building houses at the time. And I, I worked in the blistering South Florida heat doing not as fun work because houses in Florida are basically built with steel framing, you know, and I really love like the two by fours and cutting the wood and swinging the hammer yeah. and stuff. So I was miserable for the first year doing it, but, but I showed up every day and I got a, a paycheck every week and I paid my rent and I would play basketball with my friends at the halfway house every day. And, you know, slowly time ticked by and, I'd be catching the bus on my way home from work and I'd be dirty and like gross, but I would just notice like, I don't feel like terrible anymore. You know, I, I, there's places I want to go and I'm not, I know I'm not like living up to my full potential right now, but it was, it was through that contracting job and through those hours in the heat and through just the early mornings, jumping on the bus and coming home and playing basketball. And, you know, the first time I was able to just kind of, be in my spot and just let the let my life kind of settle and land somewhere as opposed to always just zooming around and bouncing and feel like I was missing out on something and feeling like there was somewhere else I needed to be you know and uh and so that that was really like when I, I turned the corner and somewhere in that first year well six months really I was at the halfway house like six months somewhere but I, I kept working at the contracting company for a little while afterwards but it was really somewhere in that six month time period that my brain flipped where it said you know what this is the way I want to live my life 
that's awesome. Yeah, no, it, man. And I didn't, I actually didn't, uh, didn't remember last time we spoke, you know, that you, uh, you were getting into like, you were doing like manual labor and stuff like I was and honestly, man, I think that was kind of the perfect job for me. It was like, I don't want to say it was mindless, but like I had to be somewhere at a certain time and it was easy enough to where I didn't have to like, I guess, think too much. It was just like, here's this, do this, you know, like real, real simple. And, um, yeah, but, but I, you know, I, I think one thing that I struggled with was, you know, looking at other people. I think it was like on social media, basically, like seeing like friends I had grown up with, you know, they were having kids, they had great jobs, they were doing this, they were doing that. I think that was one of the things that I kind of struggled uh, a little bit with early on in sobriety. And, and I always like to ask because, um, you know, obviously, if, if I hear someone else has dealt with something and they got through it, then that's, that's helpful to me. What do you think one of the, the biggest things that you struggled with early on in sobriety was? You know, I think one of my biggest fears was boredom. Uh, really. Yeah. yeah. And I really mean that. And I think people should say that more often because like, if it if being sober meant I would have been bored, I I don't think I would have stayed sober because yeah. like why would anybody, right? Yeah, like, what, 100%. Yeah, why would anybody? And that was a big fear of mine. Uh, some of the struggles I had were struggles that I, I still have, frankly, but at that time they were just so magnified. Just I, I didn't have anything to cancel my insecurities, you know, and I was, it was tough for me. I mean, luckily, I always kind of felt comfortable being a loner. And I'm not by any means saying that, like, the way I handled it was healthy. In fact, I would probably say the opposite. But for me, in my experience, you know, almost just like you said, with the manual labor thing, like, luckily, I I was, I had some skilled labor, you know, so like, I knew how to do things that is more than just like picking up rocks and moving it from this pile to the other, you know, like I really knew and still do know the skill of contracting. But if my job was to pick up rocks and move it from one side to the other, like I would have done it because it was this time for me to just be alone and almost like not care about anything else. Right. Like yeah. I, I just, it, I, I knew, especially with my, I had a sponsor at the time that I started talking to and, and I just was at peace, at least the best that I could be with knowing that this is going to go by and six months, a year from now, maybe I can start making some better relationships and maybe I could be getting more involved, you know, but like for right now, I just, I, got into a, a little bit of like a spiritual hole almost. And, mm. and again, like, I'm not saying that this is the way to do it. In fact, for most people, it's probably the opposite, but I just knew that the things I struggled with the most in terms of being around other people, you know, and caring what people thought about me and just feeling like a loser. Yeah. The thing that worked for me was almost just p- pulling away from all of that. And, you know, I've read a lot and I love to read and I've always loved to read. And I've, I've been one of those nerdy kids my whole life. Like I've read a ton of comic books and, you know, I still love Batman and, and, uh, you know, like magic cards. I found a couple of people in Florida that were just into that 
that same kind of shit that I was into. But the, the, the biggest struggle, like the point I'm getting at is the biggest struggle for me also turned out to be like a, a therapeutic experience for me was just, was just that, that angst, you know, like everywhere yeah. I went, I just always felt like I couldn't talk to people or I would stumble over my words or yep, yep. You know, I would try to go into a conversation and I instantly feel like I was blowing it. And so I'd be like, I'm just going to stand here in the corner. And then I stand in the corner and feel like a weirdo. Right. So the first six months, you know, like the first six months to a year for me was very, very secluded and uh, just very day by day. And like I said, if they told me to pick up rocks and move from this pile to the other for the first year, like I would have done it. And luckily, though, I did make two or three really good friends who are still my friends today. Like my friend Turtle, he now lives in Jersey, but God, I love that kid, you know, and I made a super strong relationship with him. Same with my sponsor and, uh, and a couple more people. I don't need to start naming them all, but I, sure. I did make some really key relationships, which, which was critical because as much as I was secluded at the same time, I know I, I wouldn't have been able to just do it alone. You know, like I, yeah. I needed other people to, to bounce shit off of. So. Yeah. 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 No, that man, that makes a lot of sense. I think he said it a minute ago. Like, I think part of what you're saying is, is changing. You're talking about the people, but the people, places and things to some degree. Mm -hmm. And, and I know like for me, man, like some of my best friends, uh, whether I was really using with them or not, like I really just didn't talk to anyone for about a year. And I did need to be around some people that were trying to do the same thing that I was and, and really understood what was going on. And, um, and that I knew like, you know, like my sponsor would be there to support me and kind of give me that, that guidance. And, um, so I get what you're saying. It's like, the the pulling away not in like completely isolating but but pulling away and just kind of finding some new influences i guess if if anything and kind of a a new team a new squad pretty mm -hmm. much is is the way i was i was looking at it so i, I think that's really awesome man now i want to ask how did sober nation start because it basically just started off as I, I know you know you like writing and i think it started off as a blog right so why, why did you decide to start it? And, and how did all of this blow up to what it is today? You're absolutely right. It started as a way to just express myself. Okay. The real story is I was trying to find what I wanted to do mm. because I liked building houses, but I was 24 years old and I was already really experiencing some back pain and I, I told you I had some back surgery I don't know if that's where I really injured it but I think just right. because I'm tall and like lean you know I just I, I don't know and so I I knew that that wasn't going to be my whole life and my father was uh so when you get on an airplane and there's those guys on the ramp that are throwing suitcases underneath it and packing the that's what my dad did for 20 years and so he had two herniated discs and I I had wow. this terrible fear of back pain because I saw how much fear my, my pop was in. Sure. So, uh, so yeah, like it started because I was just expressing myself. My sponsor bought me this subscription to success magazine. And it's so funny because it was only like 10 years ago. But when I say this, it seems like forever ago because in every issue of success magazine, they had a CD that came in it and that CD was like an interview. So it was almost like, just before podcasts, it was one okay. of the first times where I, I saw um, 
just interviews with successful people. And there was this guy on it called Seth Godin, who has since been like a real hero to me. And in that interview, I just remember listening to what he was saying and listening to his idea about being a linchpin, you know, being something that only you can do that something else needs to be surrounded with. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But at the end of the interview, he said, the interviewer asked him, what's the best piece of advice you have? Some along those lines. And he said, start a blog, don't tell anybody about it and write in it every day. So I don't know why I just heard that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I wrote in it every single day. And it was called the fourth dimension. And it was on Blogspot, And I didn't tell anybody about it. And after two or three months, I saw like, what the hell? Like there's some people reading my stuff and I didn't even know how they got there because I didn't tell anybody about it. And so that's yeah. when I first just accidentally discovered SEO and like writing content that gets found on search engines when people search for stuff on Google. And, and, and then, you know, I started learning about social media and I started coming up with this idea of, of community. And then again, I was really following Seth Godin and he, he has these ideas, this, concept around like an idea virus right where quote marketing is overrated like the thing that really spreads ideas is ideas that win you know like like mimetics kind of and 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 so i i made this decision and it didn't feel as groundbreaking at the time but i just came up with this concept that we're gonna make it so that it's not about us and it's about everybody else because if we tell people stories i just, I honestly just thought of it like meetings i really yeah, did yeah i thought of it like meetings i just thought if we give people a chance to tell their story they're gonna connect with other people and then like they'll just spread it for us and and that, I, I i paraphrase this really quickly but this whole evolution of what was just my blog into server nation was about you know, two or three years of tinkering around with ideas and stuff. So I didn't have this like aha moment. It just kind of evolved that way. And then, you know, you asked how it blew up and how it turned to what it did. And I'm telling you, that's, that's how I didn't do anything specific about me and I didn't have some agenda or some idea to spread. I just let other people, I just gave people like an open platform to share their experience, strength and hope with other people and the like we talked about with the idea virus the idea just spread and i'm really really grateful I, it did it's it's like my most prized possession in a lot of ways and it's really yeah. cool that that's awesome man i know you've worked on a lot of other projects and i think it's worth mentioning like this is just how crazy all of this is uh so and i know i haven't shared this with the listeners before but the way that kind of it's just a crazy story like you and i linked up you started a a t-shirt company back in the day with like some really cool like oh i forgot about that yeah like sober sayings and stuff yeah. and and so when you and i linked up more recently um and you invited me to do this podcast we realized that we had linked up when i had like six months sober so this is like seven years ago now and i had sent you a message wearing what one of the shirts that uh that you guys had created i mean it's just kind of crazy how things come full so and then man that's an example of like within recovery and in my life today like i truly believe there are no mistakes like how can that be you know how could you plan that out you know it just i mean it's just kind of an incredible thing but 
what, what would you say the like the core message is of of sober nation? Um, I, I will get to that real quick. Quick story though. That's how my wife and I met in the same way. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. It, it took us a little bit to really figure it out because I knew that she found me through a blog I wrote on Sober Nation. It was my seven year anniversary and I okay. wrote a blog about it. And so she must've been following me. But then like we, after we did it for a while, we really tracked it down. I was like, yeah, but like, how did you find this? Just because like the wow. marketing guy in me is thinking the same thing. And, uh, right, right. and Sober Nation, believe it or not, and a lot of people don't realize this because I don't promote it that much, but it has a huge, huge Pinterest following. And my wife is like, you know, a Pinterester. <laughs> like yeah, she yeah. loves it. And uh, the first time she found me was on, we were promoting our clothing line through Pinterest. And it took us a while to really like backtrack everything. So when, when people talk about there not being accidents and, and, and that kind of thing, you know, I always think about that story with my wife because she's like the coolest person ever. And without that dumb clothing line that actually at the time, believe it or not, like caused me way more stress than anything else because running a, a clothing company is hard. It's not the same as running like a media company. There's like inventory and right. everybody's got questions. Order fulfillment. And, yeah. And yeah. it, it, it kind of was a drag. It was, it was great. I don't regret it, but it kind of was a drag, but you know what? Like all of it was still worth it. So um, yeah. So little side note. And so that's pretty cool. And so what did you ask the core message behind Sober Nation? You know, yeah. um, we've had the same tagline from the very beginning. And, you know, maybe we don't incorporate it into our message enough, but the idea is just putting recovery on the map. Mm. This is real shit. Like everyday people die from overdoses. And even if you don't die, sometimes the consequences are worse because of just what you get dragged through yeah. and we've come a long way in the last 10 years for sure. And I'm not undermining that, but for the most part, we still see it as this kind of inconvenience almost because like, Oh, like I wish these people would stop doing this to themselves and like, yeah, maybe they need more help and maybe they need more resources. And I've never been one of those people that talks about like the stigma quote like I've always felt uncomfortable with that almost a little bit like like poor me you know like the world is stigmatizing me yeah and, um and it's not to say it's not an important message I'm just saying that hasn't been our our core focus our core focus is is just awareness and conversation because you got to talk about it because it's real yeah. it's happening it and we need to be upfront about that and and that's that's always been it like putting recovery on the map. We're talking about it. We're putting it here. Like, this is, like I said, like, this is really happening. We need to, we need to address this. And, and I feel proud about that. That's great, man. No, that's, I, I think that's an awesome message. So Thanks. for anyone that's, you know, that's watched the show or, or listened to the podcast before, I'm sure they've caught the, uh, you know, the advertisements at the end and beginning uh, for sobriety engine. So can you tell us a little bit uh, about what sobriety engine is, who it's for. Sure. Well, I am so excited about sobriety engine. And last time we talked through a podcast, I think it was when we first started mentioning it. And just let me say that, like, I, I went into this 
really for one of the few times being a little bit selfish. It's always been a dream of mine just to have the membership site. I don't know why. Like, I just think that they're really cool. And I, I always wanted it. And I always was looking for ways to do it. And so sobriety engine really was a way for me to it, it started was a selfish idea I had to start a membership site. What it's turned into, and, and you know, Jonathan, and like Tori knows, especially what it's turned into is absolutely crazy. Sometimes I go in there. And when I scroll through the real community that these people have built and like the resources that we provide for them and the way that it's helping people, like it blows my mind. And I'm proud of everything. You know, like we have real high quality stuff, like your podcast, man, the production value and like the guests, it's top notch. And, and, and like the, the videos that we create and the blog and the directory and like the development work that goes behind this website, it's not easy. And it's really, really high quality, like professional top level work that we do. And so for me to feel like so impressed and just blown away to see what has happened with Sobriety Engine isn't, isn't an easy feat, you know, because I know what good, good work looks like. And let me tell you, man, it's the same, it's the same idea. I went into it with this like selfish idea. And as yeah. soon as I got out of the way and I just let the community take care of itself, the whole thing just completely blossomed. I found out that there's a whole text group of people that met each other on sobriety engine that check in with each other every day wow. outside of the platform, just because they like That's each awesome. other, you know? That's so, awesome. so what is it, right? Sobriety engine, I think we do two or three online meetings a week. Um, we don't call them AA meetings. It's a pretty similar format because I think everybody's comfortable with that. We call them uh, just recovery meetings and it has basically a, a very similar format, just a little bit different so that we don't make anybody uncomfortable. Um, we have a recovery group once a week. The difference is that that recovery group is actually recorded and shared among the community so that they can get resources. The, the meetings are not, the meetings are private for obvious reasons. Uh, we have Omar, Omar Pinto. He comes in and he does weekly recovery coaching sessions. And Jonathan, they are so dope. Like Omar is such a killer coach and I'm so he glad is. that he's part of the community. Yeah. And he's like so gracious with his time. Uh, we have Monday meditation sessions with Cole Chance, who was on the podcast recently. And yeah, kind of same thing. I was a little bit skeptical. I was like, are we really going to be able to do like meditation sessions digitally mm. and it work? And I've been doing them every Monday for, awesome. for like a month and I feel great afterwards and they're short and, and punchy and like to the point, but you know, you see the other people and how they feel and the comments on them. And then of course there's just the daily content that Tori creates, like real insightful questions, real insightful resources that we find. Um, and then not to mention the more in-depth Q and A's that we do for real experts, not so much personal stories like the podcast has, but right, right. real resources and tips and coaching to help people better their lives in recovery. SobrietyEngine.com. It's free. You, you, we do have a, a paid option if you want to basically donate if you can. Uh, but we decided to keep it open because we, we want everybody to experience this like awesome, awesome resource and community that is, is building all around us. So sobrietyengine.com, check it out.
Yeah, no, man, it, it is really incredible. And, uh, and I actually had the, the opportunity to go on and do a Q&A and we talked about, you know, my thing, fitness and, and nutrition yeah. a little bit, which was really awesome. And I've seen there's been some, some really awesome guests coming in talking about, yeah, meditation and, and all kinds of different stuff. But I think it's really great because it's a, uh, it, it's, it, it seems like a tighter knit community where, you know, in, in my mind, I, I think this is what's important to me about it. And you and I talked about this a little bit, but it's, it's more than just the sobriety, right? Like, like, let's really get the most out of this thing. Let, yeah. Let's talk about some other stuff. Like, how can we make so I, I'm sober now, like, how can I make my life even better? You know, and I think that's one of the really cool things about uh, sobriety engine. I, I think what, um, what Sober Nation is, has been doing with that is just really incredible. So I, I want to ask you, man, because we, I think we t talked about it a little bit here in terms of, of what you were doing initially and some of the relationships you built, but what does your recovery look like today? And, and what are you doing to maintain and grow your sobriety? Great question. Uh, I think the most important thing, truthfully, that I do in my recovery is I, I continue to write a lot. The, the personal inventory has been maybe not the most important step for me. I think six and seven were probably the most important, but I, I'd say like the most useful. I really write a daily inventory. I mean, I've missed a few days here and there, I'm sure, but, but every day. And and when I started doing it and when I talked to my sponsor years and years ago, he always told me, he was like, don't forget to put things in there that you did well, because as addicts and alcoholics, like we're very hard on ourselves Man, and that's not the point of an inventory. Like it's not, it's not some opportunity to like beat the shit out of ourselves. It's just mm -hmm. a way for us to reflect and see if there were instances in which we were selfish or self-seeking. But, you know, I, I like to sprinkle stuff in there that I feel good about or that I feel accomplished by. Um, and then I do my best to sort of make a map for the next day. That really helps me. And I would say like perpendicular to that is just living in the moment and living in the day. I really do the day at a time. I, I practice that. You know, like this, I think I said this last time, this tattoo I have on my arm, make it to midnight. And that was even one of our, our shirt designs for New Life. I live that way. If there's ever something really hard going on in my life or anything that is like a real struggle, I don't think about what's going to happen two weeks from now or like, you know, what am I going to do at that wedding when everybody is toasting wine and I can't drink? Or what am I going to do when like somebody dies and I'm feeling sad or like my back surgery, you know, like what am I going to do when I have surgery and the doctor offers me painkillers? I don't worry about that stuff. I plan. I'm not blind to the fact that there's a future, but I really t handle what's in front of me and I make it to midnight. And then when midnight comes, I go for the next midnight. And like, I really don't, live outside of the 24 hours that are that are in front of me at least I, I try my best not to and I, I think I do it pretty well uh that's important to me my fitness is the same thing my fitness is almost like my meditation it is my meditation and and I think that's like really important and something that you and I really agree on where yeah. I just think people in recovery 
lose appreciation for their bodies sometimes because it's like, well, I'm not drinking today. It's still a, it's still a successful day, which is true, you know, but man, having, having just the, what's the word? Like being able to use your body, having the utility of, of your body and like your mind and energy with the food that you eat. It's just, it, it makes my life so much better so yeah those are the big ones for me for sure i i I take it a day at a time that's that's awesome stuff man yeah i I think you know for me it's important to remember like everything is is connecting for me you know i I think Mm -hmm. initially like i couldn't really i couldn't really argue with all of the uh you know, I, I'm into like what the research and kind of science says and stuff. And, and I was an opiate guy and I couldn't argue with the research about like how, you know, ex opiate addicts who worked out regularly were staying sober longer. And, and there were just all these other things I, I couldn't deny, but I think it is important because, you know, you, you go into the gym or whatever, whatever it is you're doing, you know, you're experiencing all these little wins and, and you build up some confidence and your body feels better. And I think, you know, my main thing was at the end of the day is like, you know, I think the way I thought about it, just simply put was if I if I feel bad, like if my body feels bad, it could that be like the thing that pushes me to, to go back and use again? And it's mm-hmm. like, I couldn't say no to that, you know, like, it would it would be more likely that I would I would relapse if I don't feel good physically. Um, and I didn't want to take that chance. So I, I'm with you 100%. Before we wrap up, Tim, is there one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the Sober Nation? Yeah, I think I just shared it. Make it to midnight. Um, it's, it's saved me endless hours of stress and anxiety because like, there's nothing I can do about the past and there's nothing I can do about the future. It's just if I stay right here, and I look around me, I feel grateful, I feel blessed, I feel calm, I don't feel fearful about the things that I imagine in my head are going to happen that aren't probably going to happen the way that like I'm scared that they will anyway. Yeah. So uh, living in the moment for sure has been like the greatest tool in my toolbox. That's great advice, Tim. You can learn more about Tim by visiting timstods, T-I-M-S-T-O-D-Z.com, or of course, you can visit SoberNation.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Tim. Oh, my pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much for all the amazing work you're doing. Really appreciate it. You're the man. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit SobrietyEngine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. 